be inspired to love life, to achieve extraordinary feats, and to change the world around you for the better. Welcome to Love Your Life, Tell Your Story by Kathleen Marriott. Glenn Albrecht is back with his second story. We have Glenn to thank for the concept of solastalgia. To chase his dream, Glenn had to pile his newly acquired wife and stepchild into an old Ford and head across to the East Coast. This is his second story. Welcome back, Glenn. It's lovely to have you back on Love Your Life, Tell Your Story. It's so great. Last week was fantastic. I loved your story about living in Perth and being a boy. This week, what is your story? I'm excited to hear about it. Well, it's a huge adventure. It's leaving Perth and travelling across Australia in a Ford station wagon with two large dogs, my brand new wife, Gillian, and my stepdaughter, Sarah, who was then age seven. How old were you? I, well, I can't even remember. I was just, <laughs> I was a grown man. <laughs> okay. So it was in uh, 1981 when Jill and I got married in in, a, in the back garden of 1 Parsons Avenue Manning because we'd actually bought the house off my mum. So around we, 42 years ago? Yeah, and then we, we moved to Newcastle, but the story of moving to Newcastle is there's a bit of a gap there, so I'd better tell you what that, that was. And yes, please. It wasn't always loving your life. It was more necessity. So having grown up to be a nature boy, I had intentions of becoming an ornithologist when mm. I finished high school and wanted to go to university so my my bird loving was a calling and I, I could see how I could become somebody who loved birds but also it would be not only beauty area you know a, a free gift from nature it was something that I could make a, a career out of and obviously earn a living and it was a big but a few things happened in my mid-teens, my, my, my father died, my grandfather died a, a couple of weeks later. I became aware that the social, political world was making it difficult for me to, to be as naive as I was as a, as, that, as a child. That would have been huge losses for you, yeah. given the story you told us last time. Yeah, so it, it made me think about well, what is life and how am I to live and accept uh, both the, the joy of life and the tragedies that it can deliver in spades sometimes. And so as a result, I started to think about the meaning of life and I was able to, as a teenager, start reading poetry, what nowadays you would call existentialist novels, you know, novels written by people who are trying to understand what human life is all about, what, what the, uh, how, how does one make a life when everything that was once meaningful is gradually being Can you tell away. us who the um, influences were at that time? When you? Well, you know, as I moved from uh, recovering with my mum and my younger brother from the, the death of my father and from my mum in particular the death of her father I started reading existentialist literature so Camus and Kafka and Sartre I started reading the poetry of Rambo and other kind of anarchist poets that were yeah. writing about the edginess of life and so I gradually shifted or drifted from thinking about ornithology and started thinking about philosophy and yeah, uh, big uh, philosophers ph then philosophy is the study of the meaning of life put 
very simply, at least that's one branch of it. And also the, the social context was changing rapidly. So the forests that I took for granted as a kid were being cut down for toilet paper and tissues. And so I, I had to start to come to grips with a contradiction between what I was as a nature boy and what the world I was living in was turning into. And so I decided to do a, uh, a degree in, in geography and sociology mm -hmm. at, at uh, what's now called Curtin University in Perth. And I wanted those two because the understanding the social context was it really important for me. And geography, both physical geography and human geography, covered what seemed to me to to at that time be the, the extent of what I under, wanted to understand about this rapidly changing world that I was growing up in. And I finished that degree and then went to the University of Western Australia and studied uh, philosophy. And so I, I did the equivalent of, a, of another degree, all of the philosophy units that were available through the philosophy department at that university. And I thrived in philosophy. I just knew that that was something I wanted to keep doing. And so I, I ended up uh, applying to do a PhD in philosophy and the topic was, sounds obscure and you have to say it very carefully, but yes. it was on the, on the theme of organicism, which is the idea that the earth is or is like a living organism. So the whole tr tradition in philosophy that used organic metaphor and uh, organic themes to describe society, the body politic, which is itself an organic metaphor. And so I started working on that and I had a wonderful supervisor, a professor at UWA who was an expert in that field. But he unfortunately uh, had a heart attack and couldn't continue to oh, supervise. Dear. That's a bit of a hold up for you as a young philosopher. Yeah. And, not and tragic long, for him. Not long later he died. He couldn't, oh. he didn't survive his heart attack. And so Jill and I had to decide whether we were going to stay in Western Australia or find the possibility of supervision elsewhere. So the search was on for a philosopher in Australia who had the kind of expertise that I needed, and we found one. And where do you believe that he was in the philosophy department at the University of Newcastle oh. in New South Wales. <laughs> so so we said, well, that's it. We're, we're selling, we're packing up and we're taking our dogs and our beautiful Sarah and we're, we're heading off to New South Wales. And so we, we had Christmas in a tent somewhere off, not quite on the Nullarbor, but probably on the banks of the Murray River somewhere. Our first home in New South Wales was... Anna Bay Caravan Park. Okay. It was the only caravan park that would accept two large dogs, so we didn't have a lot, a lot of choice. Uh, so our introduction to Newcastle was not dramatic. I mean, we, we were capable of finding a house. We got a gun barrel cottage in, in Wall's End, uh, a lovely landlord who was happy for us to be in his house and was more than happy with a couple of big dogs. And so we... We made that transition from Western Australia to New South Wales. And of course, that meant leaving behind all of the things that we loved in WA. Including and, th and this was in pursuit of a supervisor. Yeah, and uh, a position within, you know, I got a scholarship to okay. do a PhD. I didn't have to restart, but I had to get a scholarship in order to, to live, um, to restart my PhD under the supervision of 
a professor at uh, the University of Newcastle. Okay. And so that solved that problem. But we'd had nostalgia for WA, I and mean, we all missed our, our families. Jill's got a big family in Perth. I had my mum and uh, my younger brother was still living there at that time. And we're back in the realms of solastalgia. Yeah, so <laughs> solastalgia is, is a little bit different to nostalgia. Nostalgia traditionally defined as uh, the homesickness that you have when you're away from home and wish to return. So being in New South Wales was being away from home. Mm. And both Jill and I had pangs of of that sense of loss that, that you know you leave that which you're familiar with that which you love and go to some other place want to keep the conversation going and connect with like-minded positive people changing our world for the better be inspired by fellow change makers and join our closed facebook community to keep the conversation going search love your life tell your story now well, that other place turned out to be just as lovely and interesting as the Perth, the WA that we'd just left. Mm. We spent hours learning about this new place called Newcastle and the Hunter Valley. We explored the amazing uh, landforms and the beautiful beaches, the rainforests further inland, the wetlands were, were here. I gradually became involved with the if, with the community, so we we began to be involved with the conservation of the wetlands in the Lower Hunter. So I was uh, within one year involved in creating the wetland centre at Shortland, and uh, I was secretary of the Hunter Wetlands Trust and the and the the Shortland Wetland Centre before I even knew it. And we the birds, I became interested in the birds again because the bird life on the east coast, although similar to Western Australia was sufficiently different for it to be a, a, a moments of discovery and excitement. Newcastle being subtropical also has this amazing array of insects and particularly butterflies. So a whole we, new world to explore. We, we, we gradually lost our nostalgia for WA. Uh-huh. It's not we, we never lost it completely because we, we always had that sense of that's, that was our home, that our sense of place was as Western Australians. But a new sense of place as Novocastrians and as members of this wonderful valley that we call the Hunter Valley, that began to be a, a hugely significant part of our lives. And of course, Sarah went to school here. Jill and I had two kids, so we produced two Novocastrians. We've got our son and our daughter born and bred in Newcastle, went went to Merriweather High, you know, started their university life here, if not in Newcastle, in Sydney, as part of New South Wales, NSW, Newcastle, Sydney, Wollongong, you know, they're, they're East Coasters around the, the centred around Sydney. And so we gradually went from being strangers to being part of uh, a, the university community. Jill became part of the Hunter TAFE community, Our kids grew up in Newcastle. I began to experience the full uh, joy and and beauty of this valley. But at the same time, my academic career was uh, within the realm of the sociology of health and illness, teaching ethics to allied health professionals and nurses. I then became involved in the creation of Newcastle's first environmental degree, so I was able to teach things like environmental ethics and environmental policy. 
So I began to forge a career around my former love of life and love of nature, but not as an ornithologist, but as a philosopher, thinker, policy type person. And the story that gets me to maybe episode three is that Jill and I uh, bought a lithograph which was produced by the famous British ornithologist John Gould of the Regent Bowerbird. And on the back, we realised that John Gould and his wife Elizabeth had been in the Lower Hunter collecting birds in 1839-1840. I had no idea that the Birdman had actually been in Newcastle and it was an important part of uh, his, his, uh, his life. And Elizabeth Gould's brother lived up near Scone uh, on the edge of the Liverpool Ranges. So we just had to go up and have a look at Gould country and in order to do that, we had to go through the coal mining areas of Singleton and Musselbrook. And that's where this concept of solastalgia comes from, that uh -huh. I realised that I had this 1839-1840 uh, view of what the Hunter Valley should look like. And then, of course... Is this the first time that you'd seen the Hunter well, Valley? Well, I, I was aware of what was going on, but here was my head full of... You know, the grey fantail and, and regent bowerbirds and the wonderful life that was described so eloquently by John Gould in the 19th century. In order to get to the, the, the homestead that was still there, I had to drive, well, the family had to go through the, the coal fields. And of course, you go through open cut coal mining and the big power stations. It's not 19th century Upper Hunter which was once described as the Tuscany of the South, you're going through the Anthropocene, which is mm -hmm. the period of human dominance over the landscape. And so that contradiction triggered a, a thought in me that love of place, when it's being attacked and desolated, produces an opposite experience. So my love of life and my nature boy uh, background made me acutely aware of what happens to you emotionally. What when, happened when, when your eyes saw that? Yeah, what there, happened? I, I felt a, a, a wave of nausea. Mm. You know, and John Paul Sartre wrote a novel called Nausea. Yeah. And I remembered the connection between reading that and the sense of existential dread or, you know, angst, dread, nausea, and despair. The major themes of existentialist philosophy. Well, I had nausea. It was it was both intellectual and, and visceral. I felt sick. And so that feeling, I thought, well, isn't it strange that in the English language we don't actually have a word to describe that feeling? And of course, I we went on, we visited Elizabeth Gould's brother's uh, former homestead, Yarrandai, the place of possums in the Upper Hunter in the Upper Hunter, the further inland you go, the further away from the coal mining at that time you could you could get. So you pass through the area yeah, to get to where you were going. That's right, and then you have to pass through it again to get back to Newcastle, mm -hmm. and you follow the train line all the way. So you're part of the coal chain. Following beside the train. Yeah, yeah, both ways. You know, mm -hmm. you see the full ones blast their way back to the coast and the empty ones coming in to be refilled. So it was that experience of the Upper Hunter, I guess as a, as a thinker I'd call it ambivalent. I loved the place, but I hated it. 
I loved it, but I hated it. You, mm. you could find places of beauty everywhere, and a second later you'd find something of great hideous ugliness. So he's this boy mm. within you who has such wide eyes and his ears opened mm. and his absorption into the environment and his physical sense is in shock. That's right. So the negative feeling that I had was, uh, it's like a, a double whammy in the sense that, yes, I feel the sense of nausea, this wave of sickness come over me. It's, I'm distressed, but there isn't a word to describe it. So I thought, okay, I'm a reasonably intelligent human being. Yes. I don't have any language other than English. If it's not in the English language, I'm actually going to create it. But that's not the end of the story. No. If, once you create a concept like solastalgia, which is the lived experience yes. of negative environmental change, or the, I sometimes describe it as the homesickness when you're still at home and your home leaves you. So remember nostalgia was yes. you, you leave your home and yes. want to go back. It's the opposite uh, experience, that, which is why I had to to say to you earlier that yes, nostalgia that, is I understand a, a, now. A, a different experience it may feel exactly the same a, a sense of nausea a sense of distress but, but it's heartache that way yeah, this is different yeah the cause is the opposite yes you're at home and your home's leaving you so that's that's how i started this process of thinking about the relationship between humans and nature as a, an emotional relationship and of course you can only have these negative emotions if, if you also had positive ones yes and that's how I created concepts like Utieria. Uh, if you're capable of feeling distress when beautiful places are being destroyed, it means that you've also got within you an emotional connection to place which deserves a word of its own as well. Yes. And yet in English we didn't have anything that, other than words like beautiful to describe those places that but are still... But it doesn't cut it. Not, well, that's, that, that's <laughs> what I have felt. So... I began this, uh, the, pr the process of building a language of both the positive and the negative relationships that we have. Their emotions, their feelings, their psychological states. It's a dissidence. Mm. So you can only have one if you know the other. Yes. And so I'm often thought of as a philosopher that deals with distress and despair. But I think that's wrong because mm. I only know the distress and despair because I have this profound love of life and the the beauty that it mm. can deliver so um, it's such a positive thing because you've given people something to say well it's also something that you can share with other people mm. otherwise you think that your experience is private and that it's your fault in a sense mm. so you blame yourself or the, blame the victim uh, so i i think by giving names to things you off, offer hopefully some illumination as to what's going on and to be able to externalize it to externalize it and to share it with others and that's empowering yes. so the, the 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 thing i'd want to end on today uh, in this session would be that solastalgia has been used now to help defend places that are under attack so yeah. people with an intense love of place people who have UT area in spades and have it threatened uh, uh, now using uh, solastalgia and the psychoterratic earth psyche uh, relationships to try and defend themselves from from that attack so we've seen communities in uh, in in the upper hunter and at gloucester 
use some aspects of my work to stop their homes from being destroyed by extended mining or new mining. Mm. Um, we're seeing just recently a quarry up the road from us at Duns Creek has been refused because the impact on people's amenity would be too great. So we're beginning to see uh, people using the kind of language that I've created as a philosopher to defend their sense of place, to defend the beauty that they see as part of their life and that no one has the right, in a sense, to just simply walk in and, and blast it and take it away from them. Uh, and it's interesting that you know environmental impact assessment in the past has done a, a reasonably good job on things like uh, noise impacts or impacts on water or impacts on biodiversity but incredibly poor on the impacts on your fellow humans. Yeah. And now we're beginning to see a turnaround in that. So that's part two in a sense is that I, yes, in like the death of my father and my grandfather, there have been these shocks that have led to rethinking what, what am I going to do in this life? The shocks of a negative kind that I experienced in the Upper Hunter have actually led to really positive outcomes. But they're bouncing forward. So it's the yeah. resilience of moving forward, not going backwards. They p propel you into a new new state of life. That's right. And so that process hasn't stopped. If anything, it's got more intense and, and has motivated me more strongly the older I've got. I, and also my stepdaughter, Sarah, has had children. Anthony, my son, has had a granddaughter. She's now seven, so when I look at the, uh, the obligation that we have as parents and grandparents to put the world in a state that gives them a chance of a good life and to experience beauty area into the yeah. future, it's, as the Americans say, a no-brainer. You've just actually got to keep working harder to make sure that, uh, I call them terraforums, earth destroyers, that these people who are just destroying without thinking are not the ones that are going to be in control. And so the politics of place have always been part of my, my work. And so I shift from one side of Australia to the other, and now my work is an international effort to maintain... It's now global. ..the world mm. in, a, in a good state, yeah. to maintain those precious places that still give freely of that... Uh, opportunity that I had as a kid for UT area, that oceanic feeling of being at one with the place that you happen to be at. Surfers know all about it at Newcastle. They, they have that feeling all the time on, yes. a, good, on a good yeah. wave. So it's not really that inconsistent with what I thought I was going to do as a child growing up to become a, a bird man or a bird person. I, I'm still a bird person and I'm still protecting birds but I'm doing it on a grand scale. It's now global in, in it's bigger its Bigger than you thought. Yeah, and it's so big that I've had to create a concept which I call the symbiocene, which will be the next era in human history where we reconnect with the life that we're currently not paying attention to, that we're currently destroying. And so not content with the local and the regional, my, my thinking's now gone global, so we will need to talk about that on another occasion. And I think next week is a great time to do that. Let's do it. Let's do it. Fantastic listening to you again today. So I think we all appreciate you coming in. So keep loving your life and we'll listen to your story again and I really appreciate it. 
wonderful oh. Glenn. So oh. Glenn Albrecht, loving his life and telling his stories. This is only part of our story. To hear the rest, leap forward to the next podcast and give us five stars wherever you listen. Love your life, tell your story by Kathleen Marriott.